right, Matthew 16. Everybody got a Bible? Okay, today we'll be looking at the first 12 verses of Matthew 16. And one of the things we're going to see, uh, probably the, the theme, if you walk away with anything today, don't forget the theme. Here's what I want you to remember, okay? That it's only through Christ that the blind, and I'm talking spiritual, spiritually blind people are made to see. I'm not talking about physical blindness. As bad as physical blindness is, spiritual blindness is far worse. And only, it's only through Christ that the blind are made to see. Sadly, uh, since Genesis chapter 3, which is, of course, the fall of mankind, every person on earth has been born spiritually blind. You were, your children, you know, if you have children, uh, your grandparents, your mother and father, every, everybody all going all the way, 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 way back to the beginning has been born spiritually blind, except, of course, for Adam and Eve. But in Genesis 3, they fell. And they fell in two categories. Uh, the, the spiritually blind, that is, fall into two categories. It's, and we're going to look at both of these categories today. We can see them both coming from Matthew chapter 16 here. There are those who will never see and know God. And in Matthew 16, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were spiritually blind and they never were able to come to know God. But then there's those who are enabled to see, and they have intimate fellowship with God, and we're going to see them in, uh, in regards to the disciples. These are the people who uh, you, you are able to see. How is, how, are, how is someone able to see? How do you go from spiritual blindness to, to see, to be able to see? How is that possible? It's, well, two things. Number one, it's the grace of God. And by grace of God, I mean it's His His divine enabling it's it, grace you know it's god giving what we do not deserve but it's also the illumination of the holy spirit that's one of his ministries he illuminates us so that we we can see and and, and read the scripture and we can understand it someone who's spiritually blind or unsaved is not able to understand the heavenly spiritual meaning of scripture so the deciding factor is how a person's related to Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ or not? Are you a believer? Or is your faith in Christ alone? That's the deciding factor here. And so the person who rejects the Savior remains forever blind. That's the reality. And so the person then who confesses Jesus Christ as Lord is, is given spiritual sight as well as um, spiritual life, or eternal life. Unfortunately, though, mankind uh, does not universally have this desire for spiritual sight, not, not the same that we, we often have in regards to our physical sight. Uh, we love our sight, don't we? We, you know, we spend lots of money on our, on our, our, our bodies and, we, and, and eyes. We go see eye doctors, and if you're like me, I have to wear contact lenses, and then I have glasses for the evening, and then I got all these solutions to go with my contact lenses, and I got specially, special claws to rub my glasses so they don't get scratched. You know, the list goes on. Who knows how many thousands of dollars have been spent on my eyeballs? Probably tens of thousands. I, I don't know. It's ridiculous. But, but we, we love our physical sight. But what about our spiritual sight? Do we, do we care that much and hopefully more about our spiritual sight like we do about our physical sight well the vast majority seems to not 
No, they're even spiritually blind. It seems the vast majority of people on planet Earth don't really seem to care, frankly. And even when offered sight, many refuse it. In fact, I was talking to a uh, young man on uh, Waikano University today. Uh, Sorry, not today, uh, this week. I was trying to uh, talk about the gospel with him and handed him a track. And, hey, you know... Do you, do, you, do you even care about what's going to happen to you after you die? And, and the young man said, no, I don't. I, this is totally irrelevant to me. I don't care. I don't care what's going to happen to me when I die. Wow, I was shocked by his response, frankly. But uh, he's, he's spiritually blind, and, and he, he doesn't even know it, and he doesn't care, and he doesn't, he doesn't even want to talk about truth. Many people are that way. In Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4 here, Matthew actually records Jesus' final invitation to these religious leaders. These are the ones Jesus has been in constant opposition with. uh, And by their persistent rejection of him, they've actually confirmed themselves as among those who are spiritually blind, those who refuse to see. They're suppressing the truth and their unrighteousness. And so in this passage, I want to look at Four characteristics of those whose spiritual blindness is never going to end. These Pharisees and Sadducees were spiritually blind, and in fact, they, they've, they've now gone off into eternity in, in their spiritual blindness. But look what the Bible says here in verse 1, Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven... And he answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. For you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. You remember Jesus has come back across the Sea of Galilee to the west side. He's, uh, he's encountered these, and it may even be the same ones who came from Jerusalem. We talked about earlier in Matthew, these uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. So the first thing we see here is that the willfully blind seek darkness. They actually seek out darkness. The first characteristic is, is seen in the fact that The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus together. Did you notice that? It says that in verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came. They're together here. Now, that may not be amazing to you, but if you know anything about these these two different groups, you would find it extremely amazing that they're actually together, and they're working together. They're cooperating because they're very different. Although they ordinarily criticized and despised each other, these these two religious groups actually found common ground, common, a common cause, if you will, and it's to fight against Jesus. They were in opposition to Jesus. They're bound together by their love of spiritual darkness, if you will. So let me tell you a little bit about these, these two groups, and you'll, you'll find it's amazing that they're, they're able to work together at all. For the most part, the Sadducees were aristocratic. They're the the upper crust of society, so to speak. They traditionally, uh, amongst their groups, they're from their group traditionally would come the high priest and the chief priest. 
Uh, many of them made their fortunes from the lucrative uh, temple concessions. They, they, they made a lot of money off the money changing that would go on, and as well as the, the selling of the animals for animal sacrifices. Uh, the Pharisees, though, on the other hand, they were, they were very different. Generally, they came from the working class, and many of them made their living from a trade. Remember, the Apostle Paul was, was a Pharisee. Uh, he, he had a trade. He made tents. So many of the Pharisees were, were like that. The Pharisees were the more conservative and the fundamental of those two groups. Uh, but they held uh, to the rabbinic tradition. And, and, and they held their rabbinic, the rabbis, by rabbinic is what I mean. They, they held to that, that tradition, their Jewish tradition, to be uh, at least of equal authority with Scripture. And so they, they ended up being very separatistic. They, they, you know, they're often criticizing Jesus, for example, as being a friend of sinners. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way they were, very separatistic. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they cared nothing for the, the rabbinic Jewish tradition. They had no regrets about making religious or political alliances. Uh, they were very, uh, very compromising in their way of doing things. So they, they'd suck up to King Herod or, or, the, or Caesar or whoever had, had to be in power at the time. Their, so their key principle was basically expediency. They're very expedient. Although they claimed to believe the Scripture, their interpretation of Scripture was, was so spiritualized, basically all the meaning was lost in the process. They were thoroughly liberal and materialistic, um, I'll give you an example of some of the things they they believed or didn't believe. They did not believe in angels. Uh, uh, They did not believe in immortality or or the resurrection of the dead or anything else that was supernatural. So you can see just from that alone, just very, very different. Sadducees and Pharisees were very different. And it's interesting when you look at uh, verse verse 1 there that uh, Matthew actually uses a single article... Uh, you notice he, he says there in verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, in the Greek, it's a, it's a single article, and it's actually suggesting that the Pharisees, notice the the comes before Pharisees, and so the suggestion there is that it's the Pharisees that were the main group, and the Sadducees were mixed among them. In fact, in, in Mark chapter 8, we learn the Pharisees actually took the lead in confronting Jesus. So those blind guides of the blind, what are they doing? They're actually enlisting the support of, of men who, if anything, were actually more spiritually blind than they were, if that's possible. And so instead of coming to Jesus for spiritual sight, what are they doing here? They're actually confronting Jesus. They're, they, they are in love with their blindness, and they're joining with other ungodly men against the one who is the light of the world. Unbelievable. So we got the ritualist and the rationalist joining forces here. And why? Why? It's, it's all because they, they have this great contempt for King Jesus. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And by the way, that's, that's always the way of those who are willfully, sinfully blind. Romans 1 makes that clear, doesn't it? Uh, much of the world is, is suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They, there is no such thing as an honest atheist. <laughs> right? Everybody knows there is a creator, 
Everybody knows that. They just suppress the truth, Romans 1 says. And so they, they go about their way, and, and eventually God just leaves them over to their, to their sinful way. That's, that's part of their judgment, their depraved mind. And so their common trust is in themselves and in their own good works. And then what, what ends up happening is they end up having, just like these, these guys here, they end up having a common enemy, and the common enemy is God. So the willfully blind are, uh, they, they just, they love darkness. Number two, the willfully blind curse the light. They curse the light. And so the person who's content in his spiritual blindness has no use for spiritual light. Why? Because it actually intrudes into their life. <laughs> it's an intruder. It's, it's, it's like they, they feel like they're getting attacked by the the lights, they don't like it because it actually exposes their sin. And this is nothing new. We see this elsewhere in Scripture, don't we? For example, Jesus said in John chapter 3, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Notice what it says. Because their works were evil. That's why they hate the light. <laughs> their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Thus ends John chapter 3, verse 21. So we see the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, they're not coming to Jesus to find hope. They're not coming to Jesus to find truth. They wanted to find falsehood in Jesus. They didn't want to know the truth. They wanted to, they wanted to find something so that they, they had a reason to kill Jesus. And so that's why they asked for a sign. They wanted to find something false. They wanted to find falsehood in, in him. So the religious leaders, they didn't expect Jesus to perform a, a sign. They didn't really expect him to. They're, they're trying to set him up for a fall. That's what they're trying to do here. And so that's why it says they, they're coming to test him. And they, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Notice it's from heaven here. He had done all kinds of things on earth, but now they want to see something from heaven. Now, that's, that's interesting they would say that, uh, because I'll, I'll point out something about their belief in just a moment. They clearly had unbelief, didn't they? Jesus had done all sorts of amazing things. And they, they had seen some of those. They knew those things. But they're just refusing to believe. They had already seen uh, all kinds of miraculous signs in nature, uh, the healing of people, and so forth. Uh, you know, blind were made to see, lame were made to walk, and the list goes on. So I mean, these, these were irrefutable truths. And so they didn't deny his supernatural power to do those sort of things. But they refused to recognize as those things as being from God. In fact, you remember in Matthew chapter 12, they actually accused Jesus as being an agent of Satan. You're, they said, Jesus, you're doing these things in the power of Satan. That's what they actually said in, in Matthew 12. Well, that's interesting because Jewish superstition held that the demons could perform earthly miracles, but... Only God could perform heavenly miracles. And so notice, if you notice there, 
they're asking in verse 1 a, a sign from heaven. Because they, they didn't believe that the demons could do signs in the heavens. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees demanded this miracle they thought was, was absolutely beyond Jesus. They didn't think he could do it. And so they're hoping to prove that his, his power, uh, well, is, is, is not from God. And, and in the process, they actually wanted to disprove his message. They wanted to show that his, not just what he's doing is of Satan, but to show that the message is not divine as well. And so he, they wanted him to be publicly discredited, and of course they wanted to be vindicated. Well, in their blindness, they couldn't see that Jesus himself was actually a sign. He himself was a sign from heaven. And, and they couldn't see that they themselves were helping to fulfill that sign. And if you're saying, what, what are you talking about? Well, it's interesting that there was a man in the temple. Remember when uh, Jesus' earthly father and mother, Joseph and Mary, brought Jesus to the temple. There was a man there, a Christian by the name of Simeon. And, and Simeon was, was, was waiting for this moment all of his life. He wanted to hold the Messiah in his hands. And, and when he held the infant Jesus in his arms, here's what he prophesied in Luke chapter 2. Look at this. He says, Behold, this child, that it's referring to Jesus, is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Jesus was a sign. And so in their blindness, they, they couldn't actually see that Jesus himself was that sign from heaven. Because the unbelieving religious leaders refused to recognize God's supreme sign, which of course was his only son, they couldn't accept his lesser signs either. And so they despised Jesus. Despite the evidence that they saw with their very eyes, all these miraculous things, events that he, he accomplished, they refuse to believe. Well, this is nothing new. This is something that's gone on throughout the centuries. In fact, if you know anything about uh, theological liberalism in our, in our own day, we can see this very thing even today. The theolog- or, or the liberal theologians, they don't really, I, I don't think they really prefer the speculations of, of philosophy or psychology um, those things aren't necessarily more provable and, and more persuasive than the truths of Scripture. Of course not. But they prefer man's wisdom to God's wisdom. So if you don't want to believe in God and His truth, uh, as we saw in Sunday school, then you have to believe a lie. Right? That's the way it is. What else are you left with? And so contrary to his claim, the agnostic does not refuse to believe because he cannot know about God. But because he, he does, he's not willing to know God. He doesn't want to know God. In fact, God has declared himself, not just in Scripture, but in its creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above shows his handiwork. So, they have no excuse. So the person who turns to things, for example, like rationalism or evolution or skepticism or, you know, some people just turn to themselves for meaning and purpose to life. If, if they do that, that, well, it, it's not because of lack of evidence from God. God has given plenty of evidence to point to him. 
as creator and savior and so forth. And so the person who turns to man-made religion doesn't do it because there's no light. They're not doing it because there's, you know, how can we know truth? No. The true God is certainly available. He's made himself available. He has revealed himself in certain ways. The person who does this does it because he despises the light and despises God. That's why they do it. Knowing that the true intent of the Pharisees and Sadducees was to discredit him, Jesus answers them in a very interesting way. He kind of used a, uh, a proverb, if you will, a, a wise saying of that day. Did you notice what he says in verse 2? He says, uh, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. That's an interesting response. Those sayings corresponded to the old mariner's saying. Maybe, maybe you've heard this. I put it on the screen here for you. Here's the old mariner's saying. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. You ever heard that? It's a very common saying. Uh, in fact, I use that all the time when I'm out hunting. I, I, I try to watch the sunset. Is it, is, there, is it a red sunset? Good, okay. Because where, where I go hunting, I can't get the, you know, I can't listen to the radio. I can't watch the weather station or any of that. You know, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? Well, I can look at a red sunset and say, cool, weather should be all right next, uh, tomorrow. So this is a, we- a well-known saying. It's been around a long time, even since before Jesus' day. And so throughout the centuries, men learned that, hey, you know, you see a red sky in, in the evening. Well, that, that means that the next day should be fairly good weather. But if, uh, if you see red sky in the morning, well, <laughs> you know, the sailors are to take warning because... Everybody should take warning because it means a storm is probably on its way. And so Jesus was using that old mariner saying to, to confront uh, these, these religious leaders here and say, hey, you guys, you guys can, uh, you know, you can kind of discern signs in, in the weather, but you kind of miss the point when it comes to spiritual things. You really miss the point. So the religious leaders who confronted Jesus, they accepted the reliability of the, the weather signs, and, and they, they would do that without question. And so Jesus asked them, Hey, do you know how to discern the, uh, or say, do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times? Which is more important here? Of course, the signs of the times. And so both the Pharisees and the Sadducees were proud of their religious heritage. They considered themselves to be experts of the things of God. But, of course, Jesus shows that they were not. They were uh, uh, religiously trained. They, uh, some of, many of these Sadducees would have had high positions, been quite wealthy. They had a, a limited knowledge of the weather. But Jesus is kind of like saying here, hey, your, your limited knowledge of the weather is actually better than your, 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 your knowledge of spiritual things and than the knowledge of God. Jesus basically told them, hey, you guys are oblivious to the times in which you're privileged to live. The very times of redemption by God's own Son, before whom you now stand. So it was the beginning of the Messianic age. Jesus was the Messiah. This was the time the Jews had long hoped for. It was 
And the Old Testament prophesied Jesus coming hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before he actually came. They should have known. But those Jewish leaders didn't recognize it. And so as a result, they were actually better weathermen than they were biblical scholars. Now that, ooh, ouch, that hurts. But that's the reality of the matter. And so those signs that Jesus will return abound in our day too, don't they? Jesus is coming again. There is a second coming that is yet to come. There's many prophecies on that as well. So if, if Christ fulfilled the first coming, then we should expect him to fulfill all the prophecies of the second coming, shouldn't we? Of course. By the way, no period of history has experienced more wars and, and been so preoccupied with uh, uh, even the prospects of war as, as our own. And we hear about it all the time in the news, don't we? seems like every day... The, Something's going on, not just in the Middle East. We hear about other places like Asia. you got North Korea's threatening everybody with nuclear weapons, and Syria's killing their own people, and, of course, Israel's constantly under attack. And I mean, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? It's all the time. we got some parts of the world that seem like they got plenty of food. Others seem to always be... Uh, having famine or flood or all sorts of things, tornadoes, hurricanes, and so forth. Cults and false religions uh, just seem to, be, seems to be more and more stuff going on all the time, right? There's a spirit of lawlessness and there's a self-will that's just rampant in our society. The Bible talks about that. That's, that's, uh, Paul said to Timothy, that's the way it's going to be in the end times. We're in the end times now. We have been even since the day of the Apostle Paul and Christ. It's interesting, the prophet Ezekiel predicted that in the end times God would restore His chosen people to the land. You'll see a picture of, of Israel here. He promised them that He would do that, and Israel was, was without their land for, for a long time, weren't they? Until, what, was it 1948 or something like that? Uh, and so in our own present generation, that promise, of course, has begun to be fulfilled. It's not totally fulfilled yet. Israel does not possess all of the land that God has promised to them. That's only a small portion of it, by the way. They don't have it all. And yes, it is Israel's land. It's not, it doesn't belong to the Palestinians. Okay, It's not their land. It's Israel's land. God gave it to them. All right, And that's not going to be fulfilled till the, till the millennium. And so we have the reestablishment of the state of Israel. So we've, we've got signs of the times, all right? And I'm not even going to try to start making uh, claims and dates and doing crazy things like that. That's not the point, all right? But we are in the end times, and we need, we need to keep our eyes open what God is doing. Interesting, uh, Ezekiel also wrote of a hostile power from the north that would attack Israel. You'll see, you can see that in Ezekiel chapter 38. I've given you another Uh, map here on the screen it's interesting that russia's great uh, you know russia (laughs) you know they've hung around they're not dead and gone just because the iron curtain has fallen doesn't mean that russia is is militarily weak russia hates israel and quite quite frankly is quite happy to to wipe out israel um 
By the way, all those places are mentioned in Ezekiel chapter 38. You'll see where all these places are going to come north, north and even from the south as well and east will come against Israel in the tribulation. So even today you'll see much of uh, Russia is, is uh, very strong, even militarily. Uh, very atheistic, anti-Semitic. And so God's going to use that in the tribulation time to come against Israel. Scripture also declares the end times will be characterized by great concern for things like uh, uh, world unity, a one world government, uh, uh, one religion, uh, a world economy, all these sort of things. You, you hear this kind of language, don't you? It's going on. It's going on in boardrooms. It's going on amongst governments in the UN and in other places as well, the World Bank and so forth. All this, this oneness, this unity talk, we've, we've been hearing it for decades. And it just it continues to build and escalate, building toward the tribulation. So the world's looking for stability. We don't, we don't like going through recessions and depressions. and We don't like these sort of things. We don't like seeing our dollar going fluctuating all over the place. We don't, you know, we don't like people starving and so forth. We want security. And so the world is, is really ripe for this, this unity, this oneness. For, the world's ripe for, uh, for a, a world leader to come on the scene to kind of be the savior, small less savior of the world, to, to fix the world's problems. And of course that's going to happen in the tribulation under the Antichrist. Well, he's not going to fix the world's problems, but many people will look to him as their savior to fix the world's problems. They're going to look to him to stop wars, bring an end to political, economic, and social chaos. And so that role is going to be filled by the Antichrist. Well, all of those signs mark the end times. They're characteristic of our day, aren't they? There can be no doubt that we live near the end of the age. Uh, we're just building toward the time when Christ is going to come again. And so the concern of believers then should be for what the Bible actually says rather than what people are saying. The Bible has a lot to say about this, and so we need to study it, we need to read it, we need to, even the Bible exhorts us to pray for Christ's coming. <clears throat> Number three. The willfully blind degenerate deeper into sin. They actually degenerate deeper into sin, as if where they're at is not bad enough. It actually gets worse. If you look in your Bible, it says uh, they actually become more and more hardened. They become more blinded, if that's possible. And so Jesus knew the true motive of the, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. They knew it was... It was not to find hope, not to actually find truth. They actually wanted to trap Jesus, and, and the ESV uses the word to test him there in verse 1. They didn't want to be convinced of his Messiahship. They wanted to find something to condemn him. And, of course, Jesus knew that. He knows all things. He knew that another sign wouldn't convince them. <laughs> he already knew that. So he wasn't going to yield to their hypocrisy. He wasn't going to yield to their test and to their wicked demand. And that's why he actually tells them uh, in verse 
Yeah, in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. That's why he tells them that. I'm not giving in to your hypocrisy. (laughs) I know what you guys are thinking. By the way, we've talked about this before. Previously in Matthew, Jesus talked about the sign of Jonah. In case you've forgotten what the sign of Jonah is, that was the final sign that Jesus gave to the world, which of course was... His, his victory over sin and death and Satan, which he accomplished where? Where did he accomplish that? At the resurrection, right? When he arose again, he conquered sin, death, and Satan. That was his final sign, that sign of Jonah, which earlier in Matthew he said he would be buried for three days and three nights. And then he would rise again. So look what Jesus says to a group of of uh, scribes and Pharisees on an earlier occasion here in Matthew chapter 12. He says, uh, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The man of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Of course, that's Jesus. He's greater than Jonah. Number four, the willfully blind are abandoned by God. They're abandoned by God. Did you notice the end of verse four? Look at the end of verse four. It says, so he left them and departed. That's the end result of willful blindness. In other words, they're given over by him to their lust, to their impurities, to their sin, to their degrading passions, to their depraved minds, Romans 1 says. They're given over to that. So that which is willful blindness ends up becoming God's sovereign blindness. Okay, If you choose to be willfully blind, God will give you over to your depraved mind. So because the unbelieving Pharisees and Sadducees would not have him as Lord and Savior, we see in verse 4 here, Jesus just leaves them and he walks away. He went away. Interestingly enough, look at verse 4 there, the word left. See that word left? The word left means to leave behind. And it often carried the idea of forsaking, abandoning. That's what he did to them, to these religious leaders. And so this, this... Verse 4 is uh, very crucial. It's an event that actually marks an important transition in Jesus' ministry. So from now on, we're going to see Jesus as, as Lord. He's going to spend uh, much more time with the, the disciples. He's not going to spend that much time with large crowds like he did previously in Matthew. And uh, he's going to, for the most part, he's going to try to avoid the religious leaders. Until he, until he knows it's his time to be crucified, and then he's purposely going to walk into the bee's nest in Jerusalem. But until then, he's going, to, he's going to stay away from these guys from this point on, for the most part. So he turns away from those who reject him, and he, he focused his attention on his disciples from here on out. And that leads us to, the, to this next section, which is about his disciples. And we're going to see some characteristics of true believers who are no longer blind. Look at verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, it doesn't say here, by the way. Let me just explain. They, they were on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, but they go to the eastern side, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So 
you can find that in, in your companion passages in the gospel. So verse 5 says, When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand, and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. We'll stop there. Verse 12. First characteristic of true believers is they seek the light. Unlike the Pharisees and Sadducees, true believers seek the light. They, we, we see the disciples standing at a crossroads here. They, they had to decide whether or not, am I going to hold on to the Jewish religious system that, that I grew up in? Or am I going to follow Jesus and what he is teaching? That, that's the crossroads they stand at. And it was a big one. Well, fortunately, you know, you know the end story, don't you? Did they choose the religious system they grew up in? Or did they choose to follow Jesus? Of course, they, the twelve, they didn't even hesitate in following Jesus. They, they crossed the Sea of Galilee to the, to the uh, eastern side there. I've given you a map, uh, I think somewhere, anyway, maybe it's not up there. but No, it's not up there, sorry. But they, they genuinely sought God's light. They knew Jesus himself was the light. In fact, uh, one day Jesus actually declared to the disciples, he said, I am the light of the world. There's a, I think I have that verse up there if you back up. Uh, yeah, here's, here's what he says in John 8. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus is the light of the world. And they recognized that, which is why they followed him. So they believed the truth, and they knew that he was the one that, that needed to be followed. So number two, not only do they, they follow light, but they actually curse the darkness. So if you, if you follow something, then you end up cursing the other thing. And they, they sought God's light. The true disciples, in the process, cursed Satan's darkness. They had a, 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 they had a hungry heart for God's truth. These guys were eager learners. They didn't always get it, though, did they? Unfortunately. And Jesus even rebukes them here for that. They turned their backs on the willfully blind and corrupt Pharisees and Sadducees. They were as naturally blind as the Pharisees and Sadducees, who were all born into spiritual blindness. But unlike those unbelieving religious leaders, what we see here is that the twelve actually recognized their blindness and they're coming to Jesus for help. They're not coming to Jesus to find fault. They're coming to him for hope and help. Totally different perspective. Number three, true believers receive still greater light. And so when we come to the light, God gives us even more light. And so as soon as the disciples arrived at the other side of the lake with Jesus here, 
they, they realized, hey, you know, we forgot bread. We don't have anything to eat. They must have left in a hurry. Remember, they're dealing with all the, the, the confrontation, the opposition from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, so they must have left in a, in a hurry. They didn't have bread, didn't have anything to eat. And so here they are, they're on the, uh, you can see on the map here, they're on the, the, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't very populated, so it's not like they could just stop in at a dairy or a grocery store. Or, you know, there, was no, there was no city market where they could get food. They're hungry, they don't have anything to eat. Yeah, it's, it's a pretty desolate place. They're probably miles from anywhere they, where they could actually get food. Mark actually reports in chapter 8, they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. <laughs> Imagine, we got 13 people, at least 13, one little loaf of bread. I mean, that, that's, that, that's probably not even enough to feed Peter, let alone the rest of them. So it's not enough food. And so despite Jesus' divine teaching and his perfect example and all of his miracles we've already seen, what are the disciples thinking? Are they fully on board with Jesus? Are they understanding everything, spiritually speaking, at this point? No, of course not. The disciples still thought and functioned primarily on a physical level, which is why Jesus brings up these healings, or sorry, the, the feeding of the 5,000 as well as the feeding of the 4,000. And so when they became hungry after rowing to the other side of the lake, their thoughts, did, did it turn to Jesus? As the great provider? No, of course not. They're they're thinking about what they're lacking. Hey, I don't have any food. And so the Lord took this opportunity, as he often did, to teach them. By the way, that's a good example for us who, who hopefully are discipling people. If you're a believer, you need to constantly be in this process of discipling someone and you being discipled. Okay? You're never going to get to the point where you need to stop being discipled. You know, I hope you understand that. But you also, as you grow in Christ, you need to be discipling other people. You need to multiply yourself. And it's a good example for how Christians should disciple other Christians. Jesus walked alongside them throughout life. Life touching life, if you will. Uh, they, and he helped them to interpret life struggles to interpret their problems, to think about the opportunities in light of spiritual truth. That's the way Christian maturity is. Christian maturity is, is learning to live every day by the light of God's Word and, and, and looking to God as the provider. You're not the provider. Your boss is not the provider. The government is not your provider. God is the provider. And so we need to learn to live every day in the light of God's Word. Well, knowing the disciples' concern at at having lack of food, Jesus says to them, beware, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. (laughs) Watch out, that's an interesting word. Watch out has the basic meaning of seeing clearly or taking notice. Hey, you guys, I want you to see clearly. Take notice. Jesus was saying, open your eyes. Pay close attention. But he's not talking about physical food here. He's telling them, hey, don't be concerned about bread, but be concerned about what is truly important. You mean there's something more important than food? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
I know, I know, sometimes that might be hard to imagine. In the present situation, what is important here is the spiritual danger. Jesus is warning them of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so because the disciples, you know, their thoughts are on physical food, they ended up missing Jesus' warning about spiritual teaching. And that's why Jesus mentioned the leaven, and so he began to, to, to discuss this with them. What were they thinking? What were they thinking? Well, they, they thought Jesus was concerned that they, they might buy some bread to eat. Maybe they were thinking, you know, does Jesus, uh, does he want us, he doesn't want us to go buy bread from the Pharisees and the Sadducees, does he? You know, they're, they're again, they're still thinking on the physical, earthly realm here. That's not what Jesus is talking about at all. The disciples were confused about what Jesus meant because their earthly orientation was actually a barrier. It was, it was a wall, if you will, to true spiritual vision. Their response revealed, again, how much they needed divine help and understanding. And that's the way it is for everybody. Lest we sit here and criticize them, you cannot understand Scripture. You cannot understand the thoughts of God without divine enabling. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's not an issue of intelligence. And so they didn't fail to understand because of of limited information. They had Jesus Christ. They weren't failing to understand because, you you know, they're just a group of dumb fishermen or whatever else they were. Now, that's not the point. It wasn't a lack of brains. It's because they they had limited faith. And so Jesus was grieved that the twelve were still living by by a human rather than by divine sight. So you may have heard that saying, seeing is believing. That's a load of rubbish. (laughs) Seeing is not believing. The Pharisees and Sadducees saw, but they did not believe. Jesus says, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so, how does Jesus treat the disciples here? Yes, he rebukes them for their lack of faith, but he's very patient with them. In fact, Jesus repeated the warning to them. He says, so we see Jesus being patient here. Okay? Again, he's, he's being patient, he's teaching, and he, he says again, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why does he say leaven? You understand leaven is, is like our modern day yeast. Okay, which we use to, to make bread rise. Why, le, well, leaven was something that was used in those days uh, to make bread rise before the baking. It was used in much the same way we use yeast today. But the only method that ancient peoples had for reproducing yeast was what they would do. They'd, they, when they'd make bread, they'd save a little piece, and they kind of set that aside for the next time they made some bread. And so they would keep this process going. So, so they would make some bread, set aside a little piece, cook that bread. Next day they make some more bread, mix that in with, with the, the flour or whatever they were using. And again, they'd set aside a little piece, cook that, bake it. I don't know if you get the point here what Jesus is making, but, but they would use it to start the fermentation process in that next batch of bread. And so because... 
a small piece of leaven was able to, uh, to affect a, a larger piece of dough, and, and it was used to make it rise, the term was often used figuratively to represent any sort of influence. And that's the point. A little piece can influence a, a much larger piece. And so usually uh, Jesus and, and uh, others in the Bible would use it in a harmful sense. It, it was a harmful influence. Not always, but most of the time. And so it was the spiritually contaminating influence of the Pharisees and Sadducees that Jesus is using here as, as eleven. That's what he's talking about. On another occasion, Jesus explained that the leaven of the Pharisees was hypocrisy in Luke chapter 12. Now, their particular form of ungodliness was characterized by religious phoniness, by external purity, w- without actually having internal righteousness. So, th- so they would appear to have it all going on the outside, but, but internally, Jesus said, you're, you're just whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. <laughs> nice way of saying it. The legalism, the formalism, the ritualism, the, they, they cherished those things. They loved those things. They, they, were, they, they held to those things. But they were, those things were just a cover for their spiritual uncleanness and their deadness, Jesus said, was actually in them. Sadly, their hypocrisy permeated, permeated not just them, not just the temple, but all of Jewish society as a whole. It was like a little leaven, leavening the whole lump. And so even, even way up in Galilee, where, where Jesus spent much of his ministry, it was affecting them as well. So the leaven of the Sadducees was, if you will, religious liberalism. To them, religion was primarily a means to earthly temporal ends. For the Sadducees, it was just a way to become rich and famous. They didn't believe in angels, miracles, the resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife or anything else supernatural. So religion was just something to be used and abused for their own purposes. They were thoroughly materialistic. They were rationalistic. And Jesus is saying, hey, these guys are having a negative influence. Beware. Well, there certainly is some application for here as, for us as well. We need to beware. Both types of leaven are enemies of the gospel, whether you're, you're a ritualist or a legalist or you're a, a liberal. Both types of leavens are enemies of the gospel. Do you hear me? They're enemies of the gospel. They corrupt God's truth and they corrupt God's people. And Jesus says, beware, watch out. Have your eyes clearly open for this stuff. And Jesus was saying, hey, don't let either the legalism of the Pharisees or the, the liberalism of the Sadducees influence you. False doctrine, by the way, is always a danger. Always a danger. You'll see it constantly mentioned throughout your New Testament. So no matter what form it takes, you need to be looking for it. Be discerning. Pray for the Spirit to give you discernment so you can, you can see this stuff coming down the pipe. This is one reason you need to read books. So you can be aware of this stuff. There's, there's, God's given discernment to many godly men and women, and, and you'll find it very helpful if you, if you read those books. 
So no matter what form it takes, it needs to be avoided, it needs to be rejected, wherever and however it's encountered. Okay? You're not just going to find it uh, out there, by the way. Paul, Paul warned the church, you can expect it to come even from among you. And he meant the church when he said that. There are people who are going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. Watch out for them too. And the last one we need to look at today is that true believers are taught by the Lord. True believers are taught by the Lord. Because the twelve received his light, what did God do? He, he gave them still greater light. He gave them more light, more truth, more understanding. And so Jesus explained that he's not talking about just physical bread, but he was actually warning them, hey, you guys beware of this, this false teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, how are we to know the dangerous teachings? Jesus doesn't say here. But I just want to just kind of apply this for a moment. How how are you supposed to know false teaching, false gospels, false doctrine? How are you going to know? There's plenty of it out there, so how are you going to know? Well, the Bible says that that every believer is given God's word. You have the Bible to study. This is the truth. God says that he can sanctify you through the truth. His word is truth. Truth. But he's also given you the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Spirit who resides within every believer. One of his ministries is is illumination. He interprets the Word of God for you. So, you need to be in the Word of God. You need to be reading the Bible, studying it so you know the truth. So when you see something that's false, it's obvious to you. That's the only way you're going to know. So a vital part of the Holy Spirit's present ministry then is to reveal God's Word, and then He can apply it into your life. Okay? But if you're not a believer, then you don't have the Spirit. So you're, you're basically left defenseless. Okay? All right? But if you're a believer, uh, you need to pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal His truth to you. So as the believer studies God's Word and then he allows God's Spirit to interpret and apply it, then then you're able to understand, even, by the way, even the deep things of God. Even those things you might think, well, can anybody understand that? That part of the Bible? Yes. Even those things are possible to understand. So, though utterly blind in his natural mind and spirit, that's the way we're born, God is very gracious to us. God's gracious provision is is given to us. He gives us His knowledge. He gives us understanding of the most important truths in the universe. Not everything. God's incomprehensible, right? You're not going to know everything about God, but He helps you know the most important truths in the universe. And so, my friend, there's something you must never forget. Don't ever forget that it's only through Christ that blind eyes are made to see. Of course, I'm talking about spiritual eyes here, right? This is, the, this is the theme, I think, of this passage, that it's only through Christ that spiritually blind people are made to see. You are born in your sin, the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, every person on planet Earth has been born spiritually blind. You don't have to stay that way, though. It is possible that you can leave the darkness and come to the light. But often our sin hinders us, right? We, we love the darkness. We don't want our sin to be exposed by the light. And so it 
We need to come to the light of the world, who is Jesus Christ. And when we do, we will find that he will make our spiritual eyes able to see. Have you ever done that? Is there a time in your life where you've come to the light of the world, Jesus Christ? To have those scales removed from your eyes like, like, like the Apostle Paul when he was blinded? And then God made him able to see again? You ever, you ever, that ever happened to you? I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. My friend, if that's never happened to you, it can. It is, God can do that gracious miracle in your life. But those of us who are believers, are you in the Word of God? On a daily basis, studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it day and night so you'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water and so you, you can bear fruit for God, for His honor and glory. So you can be discerning, you, you can spot truth from error, false doctrine from the true gospel. You'll never be discerning in that area unless you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, understand what the Bible says. So this isn't going to come by osmosis. You know, you, you can't just lay in a bed and put the Bible on your head and, and, and have it soak in there. You know, there's, you know, you notice this doesn't come with a USB port, right? You can't just put a wire in there and put a, you know, there's no USB port in your brain. It doesn't work that way, right? You have to put your eyeballs on the page and read. It's that simple. And you do that in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the way God designed it, <laughs> His word is alive. It's powerful. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's going to pierce, you know, it's going to pierce into your soul and your spirits. So make a commitment to God that you will strive to know Him in His ways. It's only through Christ the blind are made to see.